0: Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Paul Smith, and in this episode, I'm joined by a much loved historical novelist whose book, Girl with a Pearl Earring, was made into a feature film starring Scarlett Johansson. Our guest joins us in the Penguin studio to talk about her latest book, New Boy, inspired by Shakespeare's Othello. It's Tracy Chevalier. Tracy, welcome.
1: Thank you, great to be here.
0: And Tracy's brought along a number of objects that have influenced her life and writing, and we'll get into those in just a moment. First of all, though, Tracy, along with a number of other authors, including Anne Tyler, Eur Nesbohr and Margaret Atwood, you are asked to retell Shakespeare's plays in a modern context. Why were you drawn to Othello in particular?
1: I was told I could choose any of the plays that hadn't already been chosen. And so I had a look around and my first choice was actually Romeo and Juliet, And then my teenage son said, oh, mom, you don't want to do that. Do you really want to write about teenage love? And I thought, maybe not. And so I started thinking more carefully. And when I came upon Othello, I thought, yes, immediately, because it to me is the quintessential story of an outsider, And I've always felt like a bit of an outsider myself. As you can hear, I'm American, but I've lived in Britain for over 30 years and uh, all my adult life, really. And so I feel like I've been slightly on the edge of the action. And I thought, yeah, I'd like to explore that further. And Othello gave me a chance to do that.
0: Can you give us a brief synopsis of New Boy?
1: New Boy is set on an American school playground in 1974, It's a suburban playground outside of Washington, D.C. And it takes place all over the course of one day in five acts, just the way the play does. And at the beginning of the day, the playground is full of all white kids, 11 years old and younger. And onto the playground walks a black boy named Osei. And he's the son of a Ghanaian diplomat. They've just moved to Washington and he's starting school. And it's about what happens to him over the course of the day. The kids he meets, the kids he befriends, the enemies he makes. And that follows the story of Othello.
0: You're known for convincingly portraying characters very different from you, distant from you in terms of historical period or cultural background. How did you get inside the main character, Osei's head?
1: I thought back to my own childhood and what it was like to be 11. It helped that I set the story in 1974 when I was 11. And I'm also from Washington, D.C. So in some certain aspects, um, the music, the, uh, the things they eat in the school cafeteria, um, the kind of work they do in class, what the playground is like, the double Dutch chants that the girls sing, All of those things were very much part of my childhood and I started with that basis and then I thought about how Osei would come into this and feel out of place, the way I have felt out of place in other times and places. Of course, I'm not black, I'm not from Ghana, so I was always aware that I was looking over his shoulder sympathetically, but I wasn't inside of him.
0: Is this the first time that you've chosen to have details of your own life in terms of the timeline in one of your novels or is it you feel like those kind of things seep in anyway?
1: It's the first time it's been more explicit. My other books are all set way in the past and this is the closest I've come to the present although my first novel had some contemporary stuff in it and people then said to me oh are you like your main character and I thought no I'm not but actually I think you're right that things do seep in. For any writer, you can tell who we are by how we express ourselves and the things that we're fascinated by and interested in. And I think that all kind of comes out in my other books as well. But this is more more uh, clearly, oh, yes, Jackson 5. Oh, yes, Salisbury <laughs> Steak. Oh, yes, that double Dutch chant. I bet Tracy jumped double Dutch to that. And yes, indeed, I did.
0: And what did this new way of writing open up for you, do you think?
1: It was a very different experience from writing um, the other historical novels I've written. Um, when I write a historical novel, I have to do a lot of research into a time that I know nothing about. I didn't live in it. I don't feel it in my gut. I have to work my way into that. Whereas this was much easier. And in fact, usually I do about at least six months of research before I start writing the book. And, and this time I, uh, I reread Othello a couple of times. And then I went to the British Library to do some research. I read a couple of critical studies of Othello. And then after a couple of days, I thought, what else shall I order? What other books? And then I thought, there's nothing more to research, Trace. You know, you just got to write it. And that was a very odd feeling. But it was a lot easier, because if I have a character eating dinner in uh 18th century England. They're going to eat very different food and in a different way from a kid in 1974 DC. I can just remember it all very vividly. And so that came to me very easily.
0: Did you miss doing the research?
1: I did miss doing the research a bit because what it did was it slightly skewed the way I wrote it, the timeline in which I wrote it. Normally, when I have six months of doing research, I'm starting to get inside the heads of my characters, even if I'm not writing them down. And so there's that feeling that I'm living with them for a while, and it it starts to then come out of my gut. Whereas this, I just had to start after a day or two. I already had this story because Shakespeare had given it to me. I just had to kind of go straight into it without necessarily feeling like I was inside the characters. So that took a couple of drafts. I felt like the first draft was just getting through the story, laying it out, but it felt like an intellectual exercise a bit. Okay, Tracy, take a Shakespeare play and, um, and make a novel out of it. And it was the second draft that I started to engage my gut, so to speak, and, and spend, I had spent more time by writing the characters, so I was with them a little more, and I could, I could make it more like my own. Uh, it really felt like it was coming from me.
0: In the book, there's a tense moment where Orsay oh, the new boy enters the daunting world of the playground. I'll ask you about that in just a moment, but let's hear the extract from your audiobook now, read by Prentice Oniyemi.
2: Now someone new and different had entered the territory, and this made Dee look at the space anew and suddenly find it shabby and herself an alien in it, like him. He was moving now, not like a bear with its bulky, lumbering gait, More like a wolf, or, Dee tried to think of dark animals, a panther scaled up from house cats. Whatever he was thinking, probably about being the new boy in a playground full of strangers the opposite color from him, he padded toward the school doors where the teachers waited with the unconscious assuredness of someone who knows how his body works. Dee felt her chest tighten. She drew in a breath. Well, well, Mr. Brabant remarked. I think I hear drums. Miss Lode, the other sixth-grade teacher, standing next to him, tittered. Where did Mrs. Duke say he's from? Guinea, I think. Or was it Nigeria? Africa, anyway. He's yours, isn't he? Better you than me. Miss Lode smoothed her skirt and touched her earrings, perhaps to make sure they were still there. It was a nervous habit, she repeated often. She kept her appearance neat except for her short blonde hair that puffed out in a curly bob. Today, she wore a lime green skirt, a yellow blouse, and green discs clipped to her ears. Her shoes were also green, with low square heels. Dee and her friends loved discussing Miss Lode's wardrobe. She was a young teacher, but her clothes were nothing like her students' pink and white t-shirts and bell-bottom jeans with flowers embroidered along the hems. Mr. Brabant shrugged. I don't foresee problems.
0: No, of course not. That was from New Boy, written by my guest, Tracy Chevalier. In that extract, we heard racism coming from the teachers, and obviously racism is still with us. Was part of your decision to set it in the 70s so that those in authority could be openly racist?
1: Yes. I'd like to think that teachers who spoke like that now in schools uh, would be fired. I think we've come a long way. I hope we've come a long way, but... Certainly in the 70s I remember hearing comments made and the story is about how you treat people differently from you. In this case it happens to be about race and I wanted to show where that might have come from and the casual racism of the teachers would trickle down to the kids. So I explore that quite a lot.
0: You touched on it earlier where you talked about looking over the shoulder of or the main character, rather than giving a direct perspective of a a Ghanaian schoolboy in the 70s. It must be something that you've thought about whilst writing this book. Where do you stand on on white authors writing about people from other racial backgrounds?
1: I don't want to feel like I always have to write characters who are just like me. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I'm not always the right person for the job. And in this case, I thought a lot about it, and my feeling was this is a book about... A whole community and how they treat someone differently. So I look over the shoulder of Osei, but I also look over the shoulder of Ian, of Dee, who's Desdemona and Othello, and of Mimi, who's Amelia and Othello. It's quite carefully set up. Uh, There are five acts, and each act you go around and look over the shoulder of one of those characters. And three of those characters are white, and one is black. It's about how they all work together to create this kind of racist atmosphere. And if you're going to explore racism, I would prefer to do it from both points of view so that you get a fuller picture. Mm -hmm. I would have felt that if I just told it over the shoulders of the white kids, we'd be really missing a very important voice. Having said that, I made a deliberate decision not to write the novel first person inside the head of Osei all the way through – a Ghanaian boy. I would rather a Ghanaian writer wrote that. I think they would do it a lot better than I would. It would be more convincing. So I think that this question of what writers can and can't write, you have to be very sensitive to it and understand what it means to take on a character. So I was very aware of it.
0: Is Othello even the main character in the original play? Iago seems to be the the main protagonist and Othello's demise is often linked to the actions of, of Iago.
1: Now, the question of whether this is Othello or Iago's story is a really, really interesting one. And I've seen a lot of productions of the play. And my feeling is that it's very hard to get away from the fact that Iago is a more interesting character because we just don't know why he's doing what he's doing. It's that malevolent evil they talk about where Iago manipulates Othello into this jealous rage. And he says to himself that it's because uh, he was passed over for promotion. But it it, it's, it goes way beyond that. I had to make a decision about whether I was going to replicate that in New Boy. And I decided that I didn't want this to be all in Iago's story. It was as much about Osei. It was as much about the girls, too. And that's another thing As in Othello, you know, Shakespeare's a great writer, but he really underwrote his female characters. Yeah. So Desdemona doesn't get much. Uh, Emilia's quite, her, the servant is quite an interesting character, but she only gets a few moments of glory. And I, thought okay i'm going to shift the balance here a little bit i'm going to make this a story about all four of them so they all get more or less equal airplay so to speak
0: well let's go back to that original text you've brought your copy of othello to the penguin studio yeah the first of a number of objects you've brought along with you today to share with us it's dog-eared in a in a normal way. Yeah, Um, open it
1: up, though. You'll just see (laughs) scribbles all through it. In pencil, I have to admit. There you go. But everywhere, there's lines underlined. There's notes everywhere. It was an interesting process because I read it straight through, and then I read it really carefully, making all of those notes. And then I put it away, and I thought, I'm not going to look at this too much because I think if you try to follow it too closely, it may not work in the context of 1974 school. And in fact, a lot of Shakespeare plays have some pretty convoluted subplots and, and coincidences and things that happen that you just think, yeah, that wouldn't go down on a playground or in a novel. It's too unbelievable. And so I had to kind of simplify the subplot. It was like pulling a thread out and just getting rid of certain things. I also felt that very strongly there were certain things I really wanted to keep in it. So, for instance, the plot of Othello circles around a strawberry handkerchief. It's a handkerchief that Othello gives to Desdemona, and it's embroidered with strawberries. And she loses it. Her servant, Amelia, finds it and gives it to Iago, uh, who uses it to create this jealousy in, in Othello... And I thought, it's. I want to keep it. How am I going to make it into a school, make it sense? Because kids didn't have handkerchiefs then. So I made it into a pencil case that has strawberries embossed on it. And another example is in Act 4 of Othello. There's a scene after um, Othello has been violent with Desdemona. Desdemona is getting ready for bed. Emilia is helping her. And Desdemona says, sing this song for me, the Willow song. It's a very famous song about love gone wrong. And I thought, I've got to think of a a song from 1974, 73, 74, that the girls could sing. I wanted to have that moment between them. And so Dee gets pushed by uh, Osei. She has to go to the nurse because she's hit her head. And she and Mimi sit outside the nurse's office and the radio's on and this song Killing Me Softly comes on. I had to come up with a song, and I thought, Roberta Flack's Killing Me Softly, that would be perfect.
0: Very much of the time. We will move on to our next object very quickly, more quickly than we usually do, because one of the objects that we have been speaking about, essentially, is the inspiration, perhaps, for your placement of the Roberta Flack song in the novel. It looks like a music box,
1: It's a little music box that my editor of this book gave me, and I'm just going to play it a little bit. I'm going to crank it along. It's a little tiny thing. Here it goes. Paul, do you recognise that?
0: I do. I do as a musician and also somebody from the... Early two thousands when the the Fugees revived. Yeah, it. Lauren Hill. Yeah, yes. with Lauren Hill on lead yes. vocal. Obviously, it's, it seems to be a key part of the novel. Is it D, as in Desdemona? Is it her song? Because there's a sense of yeah. defeat to the lyrics, and both Desdemona and D seem to share a certain passive quality.
1: Yeah, Killing Me Softly was a huge hit by Roberta Flack in late 73, early 74, and I remember it really well, and we used to sing it on the playground, but we didn't really understand it. When you're 11, it's a very painful song. It's about a woman who's saying, this man, I'm so attracted to him, he's pulled me in, and then he's kind of pushing me away. I think that it reflected really well what Dee is feeling. And you're right that there is a certain passive quality about Dee and Mimi in the story. I couldn't get entirely away from Shakespeare. You know, he he really loads the dice so that the two guys, Iago and, and Othello, really get the main—they're more active. But Dee and Mimi are more observant, observing what's going on and commenting on it. And I thought that this was the perfect— 1974 equivalent of the Willow song so it fit in beautifully and I was so glad because there was I was looking through the top 40s and thinking no I don't think any of the rest of these songs is going to quite going to quite make it but this one did.
0: Well talking of period detail let's take a trip back in time into the 1970s classroom in this extract from your audiobook.
2: Miss Lode was sensitive to the perception that the other sixth-grade class, with its more experienced teacher and bright students like Patty and Casper and Dee, was more advanced than hers. Mimi could have told her, though, that for every Patty and Mr. Brabant's class, there was also a Blanca. Blanca with her tight top and her lips stained red from the now and later candy she'd been sneaking during class. Her breath smelled of synthetic cherry— as she grabbed Mimi and cried, Dee gave her pencil case to the new boy. I saw him with it. What? Snoopy? Like many girls, Mimi could itemize her friend's wardrobes and possessions, especially the things she coveted. Blanca's polka dot flamenco shoes, Dee's owl necklace, her older sister's shiny red raincoat. She knew who had the Partridge family lunchbox, the pencils with tiny troll erasers on top, the smiley face pin. Of course she knew what Dee's pencil case looked like, just as Dee would know hers was made of old jeans and had a pocket on the outside where Mimi kept an emergency wintergreen lifesaver. I couldn't believe it! Blanca rested her arm on Mimi's shoulders as if they were best friends. She always assumed an intimacy that the other girls did not feel. Mimi moved out from under Blanca's arm. So... What's Dee going to use instead for a pencil case? Blanca shrugged. No idea. And they were sitting together and talking the whole time. I bet they held hands under the desk.
0: We heard the characters there in their classroom, but most of the action takes place in the world of the playground. Why did you choose that as your main setting?
1: I chose the playground because it's where kids have control. Adults may think they're in control, but actually a lot goes on on the playground that they don't know anything about. Whereas inside, in school, you're much more regulated. On the playground, you can do what you like, and that's where things can get a little bit out of hand.
0: And why did you choose 11-year-olds in particular? What did that age group appeal to you as, as a writer?
1: When I was 10, in what we called fifth grade, year five, We went away for several months. My father had a sabbatical, and we went out of town for several months. And then when I came back, I came back sort of midway through the year. And I went unusually to a school in D.C. that had a predominantly black student body, and I was white. In a classroom of 30, there would be three white kids, and I was one of them. Race had never really been an issue. Suddenly, I started getting hassled about being white, And I didn't really know what to do with this and make of it. And then in sixth grade, when you're 11, which is when New Boy is set, puberty hits. So you've got this toxic mix of suddenly being very aware of difference. And in the past, yes, there had been kids would pick on you for being – having glasses, which I did, and for other things. But suddenly it became much more um, ramped up because it was about race and we were somewhat – imitating what we saw in the outside world because there were a lot of racial tension in, in the States at that time and still is. I thought 11 is the perfect time to set this book because you're not teenagers. It would be too obvious to set new boy in a high school mm-hmm. when kids are sexually active, et cetera. And to get them just on the cusp when they're still kids, they're dipping their toes into the adult world, but without really knowing what they're doing.
0: Well, that brings us nicely on to your next object that you've brought in and chosen to share with us. It's a photograph of you in fifth grade, I believe. It's slightly faded now. It says Tacoma Elementary School, Mrs. Reed, grade five, 1972 to 1973. How old were you in this one? I was 10. So yeah, there you are in the middle and everybody looks pretty chirpy for a school photograph, I have to say. (laughs) Um.
1: (laughs) There are some great ruffles on the shirts the boys are wearing. That's what just cracked me up. You just see some amazing fashion. I think the thing I take from that photo the most, I laugh at so much, is what we were wearing. And I was the worst. I was wearing (laughs) stripes and plaid together and I was fat and I had... Ponytails, And I had horrible glasses. And I look really anxious. I'm biting my lip. And I think that it encapsulates what my position was in the classroom. There's a certain anxiety about being other, being slightly different from most of the other kids. Even though a lot of those, you know, they were my friends and I had gone to school with them for years, but as I explained earlier, I had just come back from being away and something had happened. There was a, there was a change in the atmosphere that somehow racial difference had become more pronounced. Dee,
0: the Desdemond characters, has an awakening wooed by Orsay's tales of travel. What is it about Dee's character that, that allowed her to be much more open than the other kids, do you think?
1: That's a really good question. And it's interesting because in Othello, the play, that's not really answered. What's so interesting about Othello is that it doesn't start with their relationship, and that's another change I made. When it starts, they have just secretly gotten married. And you only hear about the development of the relationship when they're telling other people what happened. And this is, you know, I met him, and I was really overwhelmed by his travels and how interesting he is. So you don't really get a sense of the development. It's just the falling apart of the relationship you get. And I had to take some clues from Desdemona. I don't think she's a very developed character for Shakespeare. I think what was really telling is that she... She said she fell in love with Othello for all of his adventures and the different things he's seen, rather than for him himself. And I think that for Dee, Osei represents someone new and different, and she's just attracted to the difference, rather than necessarily attracted to Osei himself.
0: Let's talk about the changes that Dee goes through. One of the signs of independence, I suppose, from a former status at the school is when she loses
2: the tight braids in her hair. Let's hear about that now. O seemed to slump and made to pull his hand away, but D held on to it until Mr. Brabant frowned at her and shook his head. If she weren't careful, she too might be suspended. She let go of O's hand. As she followed him up the stairs to their classroom, her teacher stopped her. Dee wanted to call out to Osei to stop, too, but Mr. Brabant might tell them both off for holding hands. She knew he didn't like the new boy and would use any opportunity to show it. But Mr. Brabant surprised her. "'What has happened to your hair?' he demanded. "'Oh, I... I took out the braids,' Dee blushed. Mr. Brabant had never said anything about her hair, but then he had not had reason to. Until now, she had kept it bound up and tidy.' It looks... messy. Dee opened her mouth to apologize, then stopped, recalling her earlier defiance on the playground with Mr. Brabant. It's not against the dress code to wear my hair like this. Mr. Brabant frowned. No, but it's not like you. Dee shrugged. I like it this way. Do you? Yes. Actually, it tickled her neck and kept getting in her mouth, but Dee was not going to tell him that. That's a shame, because it doesn't suit you. Trust me. Dee hung her head, not wanting to meet her teacher's eye. She felt as if she were being told off by her father.
0: That was another extract from New Boy by my guest Tracy Chevalier. It seems the central problem of Othello is that Shakespeare has to convince us that a gentle, intelligent man can become jealous and ultimately violent within a very short space of time. Did you find this problematic? Is that something that you had to wrestle with with the novel?
1: Yeah, it is a tough one. And in some ways, the strength of a production of Othello is all about that central scene in Act Three when Iago says, hmm don't like that and starts slowly drawing othello who seems to have been a nice guy up until now and then he he draws him out and two good actors can make this really feel genuine to a point where you don't question that othello kills desdemona in the end it's it's a um a challenge to write that particularly because i've set the book over the course of one day yeah Very deliberately. Things happen fast with kids. Relationships happen quickly and then die quickly. And I just wanted that feeling by condensing it of making it more dramatic, more oppressive and sensational. I've also set up Ian Iago, as the bully of the playground. So you really get a sense of how he manipulates other kids already. Osei is not the only kid on the playground he picks on. And you you get a feeling that he's quite clever with it. He rules the playground as the bully, and he has done for a while. So there's a feeling that he kind of knows what he's doing. And Shakespeare doesn't give Iago any backstory, and that's fine. But I found with a novel now, people expect a little bit more, because otherwise it feels like the character's a bit cardboard whereas there's really something when you see a, an actor on stage that fills them out in a way that you almost don't need a backstory. So I didn't want to do too much. I didn't want to overanalyze Ian too much, but I wanted to give Ian a little bit, just, just for the reader to, to flesh them out in their heads a bit.
0: Orsay well, had suffered racial abuse in many of the schools he attended, so perhaps what happens between him and Dee was simply the straw that broke the camel's back, part of a larger problem. Let's hear one final extract from the audiobook.
2: Osei would never have called himself an angry person. He had come across plenty of angry students in the schools he had gone to, angry at teachers for being unfair, at parents for saying no, at friends for being disloyal. Some even expressed anger at world events, such as the Vietnam War or Nixon and his Watergate cronies. And his sister, Cece, of course, was often angry now. Over the past year, She had complained about honkies, about politicians, about black Americans putting down Africans, and Africans being too reliant on Western aid. She even complained that Martin Luther King Jr. had been too passive. Sometimes their father debated with her, and he ordered her never to say such a disrespectful thing again about Martin Luther King. Her anger was so wearing, though, that often her parents simply exchanged glances, and once O was surprised to see his mother roll her eyes— a gesture he'd thought was reserved for girls. Righteous, his mother called C.'s tempers and did not mean it as a compliment. But O himself was slow to anger, he thought. As his father liked to remind him, anger was the easy option. It was much harder to keep your temper and sort out a problem with measured words and deeds. That was what a diplomat was trained to do, what his father assumed Osei would do, too, when he grew up. That, or become an engineer. Not surprisingly, he never suggested Sisi should train to be a diplomat. So oh, was surprised with himself when the anger began to well up in him like water rising steadily in a river. For a while it was hard to see, then suddenly the water was in places it wasn't meant to be. Fields, roads, houses, schools, playgrounds. It was there, and you couldn't get rid of it or make it change direction.
0: As we just heard, Osei has a sister, Cece, who is experimenting with ways to channel her anger about racism. How did you go about writing Cece?
1: Yeah, Cece is a really interesting character. There's no equivalent in Othello of her. I wanted to give Osei somewhere to to move to. His character understands something realizes something and um, becomes political. And I needed that to come from somewhere. I think one of the things I noticed about Othello when I was reading it, seeing it, is Othello himself doesn't change that much. He becomes jealous, but he doesn't understand what's happening to him and why he's being treated like this as an outsider. There's there's very little kind of political knowledge there. Cece is a few years older than Osei and uh, in the early 70s there's black power movement and she becomes part of that and he can overhear her sometimes talking to her friends about black panthers and the the political movement and the ideas and consciousness raising and she doesn't move to Washington with the family and so he doesn't have her to to explain what's going on and to talk about what's going on but he Uh, over the course of this day as things get worse and worse he starts to tap into that and he understands and he becomes angry that he's being treated this way angry and understanding in a way he has never before and so that leads to the end
0: well let's move on to Hmm. your final object now you've brought in one of your notebooks I believe it's a lovely cloth bound green quite large notebook and it's full of handwriting, it looks pretty longhand. Rather than little notes, it feels like full-flowing writing. Do you feel that, that way about it?
1: Yeah, I write in a different way from most writers now. Most write on a, straight onto a screen, and I find screens really horrible. They feel like work. They feel like I'm writing a complaint letter. I feel writing longhand is more organic, and so I write in a notebook... And then every couple of days, I type into the computer what I've written. You know, you can see on these pages that I've crossed things out and moved things around. So it's not all pristine or anything like that. But then when I type it in, I also make changes. And then when I finish a draft, I print it out and I make changes on the paper. I like the, the feel of it. I like feeling paper. I like the pen or the pencil. And I also write more slowly than I type. So I write slowly and deliberately and I write it as I think it. So the the writing of a sentence with my hand sort of imitates the same speed at which I'm thinking the sentence. Mm-hmm. So it feels right. So these notebooks are really important to me.
0: I should just remind the listeners that if you want to see the objects that we've talked about today, you can go to the Penguin Facebook page and our Twitter handle is at Penguin UK Books. So you can see these lovely objects that Tracy shared with us. In this particular notebook that we've got before us, is, is that your next piece of work? Is that what you're working on at the moment?
1: Yes, yes. It's a novel set in the 1930s at Winchester Cathedral. So completely different from New <laughs> Boy. It couldn't be more different.
0: Do you have lots of notebooks on the go?
1: This is the writing notebook, the novel, the manuscript. And I have a separate notebook for taking notes. So when I first start, sometimes I try to theme the notebooks a little bit. I wrote a a book about medieval tapestries and I got this kind of dark burgundy velvet cloth bound notebook for them. The one for Othello um, is cloth bound and is black, of course, I had to (laughs) choose that. But um, I love the kind of tactile feel of them and the notes are really important to me as well.
0: And can we have any more clues about your next novel?
1: The novel is set at Winchester Cathedral in the early 1930s. There are um, cushions and kneelers that are in use there now that were made by a group of volunteer women in the 30s. My heroine is one of these volunteer women. She's trying to make a life without men because she lost her fiancé during World War I. And society is not really caught up with the idea of there being women of independence, and she's learning how to be independent. So that's what it's about.
0: That sounds very interesting. It's almost all we have time for. Uh, it's been really nice to chat to you today. Thanks for coming in. I've been inspired to read and research Othello because I didn't, before reading your book, I I had never read Othello. We'd done Midsummer Night's Dream, I think, right. and Romeo and Juliet at school. So it was one of the Shakespeare plays that I knew very little about and New Boy really made me want to go and read it. Thank you very much for your book.
1: I feel bad because I've spoiled alert. I told you that Othello kills Desdemona. (laughs) Ah. That's the difference between Othello and New Boy is writing it. I always knew the ending, you know, the ending of Othello. There are bodies everywhere. Everybody dies pretty much, which is par for the course for a Shakespeare tragedy. And I thought, I don't want to have a playground strewn with bodies. I have to find... A 1974 equivalent of a death for a kid. So that was quite a challenge.
0: Yeah, that was one of the things that I thought as I was reading it. There was a sense of foreboding, but thankfully, yeah, the, the body count is low. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to reading the next book. It's really nice to hear from you. Thank you, Tracy Chevalier, and goodbye.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Out now from Penguin Random House Audio. From the award-winning master storyteller Colum Tobin comes a reimagining of the Greek tragedy Orestia. House of Names is compelling and audacious and takes us through the thoughts and feelings of Clayton Nestra as she and her lover plot to kill Agamemnon once he returns from war. I have been acquainted with the smell of death, the sickly, sugary smell that wafted in the wind towards the rooms in this palace. It is easy now for me to feel peaceful and content. I spend my morning looking at the sky and the changing light. The bird song begins to rise as the world fills with its own pleasures, and then, as day wanes, the sound too wanes and fades. Beautifully written and intensely vivid, House of Names brings myth into the real world and is available to download now from Audible, iTunes and Kobo.